You're listening to Amplify Art's Alternate Currents interview series. Alternate Currents opens space for conversation, discussion, and action around national and international issues in the arts that have a profound impact at the local level. This interview series is just one part of the Alternate Currents blog, a dedicated online resource linking readers to topical articles, interviews, and critical writing that shine a spotlight on artist-led policy platforms, cross-sector partnerships, and artist-driven community change. Visit often and join the conversation at amplifyarts.org backslash alternate currents. Today we're talking with Aaron Foley, finance manager at Filmstreams, about the relationship between art and labor and working toward more financial stability in cultural fields. Um, my name is Erin Foley. Uh, I have a background in the arts. I actually went to undergrad at um, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I studied sculpture and sound and visual and critical studies. Um, after undergraduate studies, I ended up uh, teaching for nonprofits in Chicago uh, through Urban Gateways and After School Matters, uh, doing design build, drawing, painting, and grades K through. 12 and also some like post high school students um and I also worked as a studio manager for Michael Rakowitz where I fabricated work for him uh, for his shows at his gallery in New York at Lombard Freed Projects uh worked on the Istanbul Biennial the Sharjah Biennial Tate Modern um Hakave House of World Culture in Berlin um so I got a lot of professional experience and then after five years, I applied for grad school, ended up getting a fellowship to University of Southern California, where I did a lot of kind of experimental studio practices and kind of got back into, you know, working in the studio, working on my own stuff, uh, sort of fell back into painting and um, woodworking. And then um, after I curated a show at control room and then I ended up moving back to Omaha and you know kind of just taking a little pause reassessing applying for jobs around here and then in the nonprofit sector at like museums and art institutions and then ended up going back to school for accounting because um, <laughs> I had been working for Mercer management and got some bookkeeping experience that sort of led me back to um, doing another bachelor degree and now I finished my degree, and I'm the finance manager at Filmstreams here in Omaha, and then I also um, adjunct a sculpture class at UNO, and I'd adjuncted a few other classes um, at Iowa Western as well when I was um, finishing up my second undergrad. I want to ask you a little bit more about that transition from working um, as an artist and for other artists into this kind of other field is where you're working a lot with numbers and finance. But before that, I wanted to ask a little bit about your experiences working for other artists. Um, you brought up Michael Rakowitz, and I know that you've worked for some other people. How would you characterize the way that you were compensated? Because there's this idea that like uh, we position a few people, at least in the international art market, as these kind of like creative geniuses. And we don't talk a whole lot about all of the cooperative and collective labor that goes into um, producing these projects, especially when it comes to uh, teams of studio assistants and people who work mm -hmm. at institutions and um, yeah. all of this other stuff. I, and I did work with him very closely for five years. Like I would travel to um, other parts of the world with him and his wife and like we'd be there for 10 days. Sometimes they'd only come for a part of it, but I would oftentimes be there ahead to like do finish up fabrication and install and then we'd spend 
you know, the opening and the dinners and the royal dinners together and like traveling around like Sharjah, you know, figuring stuff out. So we ended up becoming very close. And I think that, you know, he'd oftentimes, you know, refer to me as a friend, like he's given me art pieces, you know, like he would, he would mention like wanting to collaborate in the future. And so like, I think it gets great because you like a lot of, um, I think a lot of, uh, sort of advances that happen in the art world, like any place, often happen through nepotism, you know, or happen through um, knowing the right people or being in the right situation at the right time. So, you know, like as a 25 year old, like I was having dinner with like the chic and, you know, with like the, you know, curator at, at Tate Modern, you know, so there were a lot of, um, like there's a lot of like cultural capital I guess that's involved or like some social capital or like connections or networking that like are really kind of invaluable but in terms of like how I was paid like um I was very young like I didn't really know how to ask for a raise I didn't really know how to um you know value my time and my work like I think there's this idea that, like, if you don't want it bad enough, someone else is going to want it more. So, like, it does end up getting, like, really kind of gray um, in terms of, like, how you're compensated. But, like, you know, I was in a typical, like, hustle, like, uh, you know, freelance, just, like, constant 1099s, like, whether I was getting paid through Michael or through the institutions that had, like, um, you know, commissioned the work. Um Never really certain, like, where the money was coming from. I knew it would be there, um, you know. And then I would also, like, work, uh, you know, three months stint with him and then be like, oh, great, now I'm, do now I'm done and I'm exhausted. <laughs> now I need to go apply for more jobs, you know. So you're just, like, constantly, like, balancing. I never got to a place where I was, like, full-time with Michael, um, but I also was able to, like, teach and do other projects on the side while I was working for him, but, mm -hmm. yeah, I also had to wait tables um, to pay off some student loans, you know, like, right. it is the gig economy, and uh, hopefully that will change, like, um, and I don't know what Michael's practice is like now, um, I think another factor, um, you know, just to be, uh, you know, kind of fair is that, like, he was moved to Chicago, like, he was just married, like, he was trying to, like, build a life where, like, they could have a family and stuff, and he would, you know, so he had, like, that sort of, um, responsibility as well, um. And he was operating in that same gig economy, right? Yeah, he's also operating, thank you, yeah, he's also operating in that, and, like, he doesn't know, like, is this going to be the last project, or, you know, I know I have, like, the next year planned out, but, like, what's next, what's next, and, yeah. you know, so, or is this curator that, like, is getting me all the shows, like, what if they pass away, you know? Like, so, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, like, unknowns, I think. A lot of uncertainty. Did that uncertainty or that the those instabilities have any bearing on your decision to transition to um, accounting? Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess I just sort of reached an age where I was, you know, back here, um, the jobs that I had been applying for in the Omaha nonprofit art world, uh, at least with just a, a, a BFA and an MFA, um, weren't going to give me or provide enough for me to like live off comfortably um as like an independent person um 
So, and I knew, I think I'm lucky because in some ways, uh, for having had the experience with Michael and like knowing what the hustle's like and like it, there's some great things about it like I was really fortunate to um you know besides having to wait tables for on and off for a couple of years like I was able to support myself in the arts but I was working like 70 or 80 hours a week you know and I was like barely like pushing like 50,000 in Chicago you know so um coming back here and realizing like whoa there are not the same opportunities like there I can't I'm not gonna be able to get it like a job fabricating I'm not going to be able to pick up like <clears throat> art handling or installation jobs or there just isn't the same like um, little gallery system and there's not the same amount of like museum jobs. So I just kind of realized like I love art. I love everything about it. I just don't understand the money. <laughs> so and I ended up doing some bookkeeping and I liked it. Um, and in a way it's kind of like similar to like a studio practice. You can kind of like be alone in your own world. It's a lot of focus and attention to detail and you can kind of just like get lost in it. Um, and I mean, it's not as much fun to study, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, I knew that it was a stable job and it would provide me with like financial stability for my future. If I could just sort of like make it as an artist, I know how to handle money now. <laughs> so it'd be great. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I feel like that's a good skill set and probably a skill set that a lot of people engaged in creative fields sort of end up naturally developing by necessity, mm-hmm. but one in which we could all use a little more training and um, specialized knowledge. Definitely. I f- remember just thinking, you know, I had, I did like a, my fir- one of my first like larger freelance jobs in Chicago was to build and design and paint a billboard for Reckless Records, a record shop I worked at. And uh, it was like, wow, this is so cool. Like <laughs> making a billboard, you know, it's like really fun and like exciting. And then the end of the year, and I, you know, I made good money. And then at the end of the year, like, it's like, oh, I owe the government $600. And like, I didn't know I would have to pay taxes on like, you know I just right. did, I just didn't yeah. know I'd never mm-hmm. had like an independent contracting job before I just didn't know I don't have parents I didn't grow up with like um examples of that sort of um structure and so I just really was oblivious to it and it was all just like learning through mistake after mistake after mistake you know or like things like well when you're like getting a 1099 from like Germany and from like London and from California and like you have to go to an accountant to do that stuff. There's no way I could figure out all the making sure, right. you know, I wanted to yeah. make sure that I was like doing it right, doing it correctly. And so it's like, I wasn't factoring in the cost of the accountant or the cost of like healthcare or the cost of, um, you know, taxes, um, into the rates I was setting or getting, like, I just, you know, I felt like you were just sort of expected to handle that on your own. Um, or a lot of times too, you see like, I guess it's it's like, I don't want to like pull the curtain off of anything or like really reveal the myth, but a lot of people in the art world are getting like financial support elsewhere, you know, and not from, not just from the freelance jobs they work or the sales they make in a gallery. Like they're getting subsidized through multiple different places. I've seen like family inheritance or trusts or like spouses or, you know, like sometimes they're have had another life and like they were like in investments or like in finance before Mm -hmm. they ended up being in arts. And so they have like sort of a different, um, a different sort of freedom with that or way to kind of handle the money. 
So are there, are there other kind of structural either supports or deficiencies when we're talking about tax law and um, some of the harder finance principles that encourage individualization in cultural fields? Um, I don't, I don't think the tax laws really do encourage individualization in like arts. Like they have like a hobby tax is like what you end up doing for the most part, unless, unless the majority of your income is coming from sales of your work. Like you can't really define it as business income. It's going to be like a hobby and you have different, you can't write off as much money. You don't get as many deductions. Um, there are just different rules to it, but like in terms of like, I know, like, you can be classify yourself as, like, a sole proprietor or get incorporated or become an LLC and have different rules there, but I never got to a point where, I mean, I guess I, I probably should have done that when I was working for Michael um, and teaching, um, but again, like, I just didn't really know and I didn't have, like, the best, like, right. guidance, or I didn't have any guidance, I was just kind of, like doing stuff um you're also so busy and just kind of learning things that it makes sense but I don't think that um the tax laws we have are are set up to promote would you say like individuality or individualization, individualization. people kind of like striking out on their own oh um I mean it's interesting to me because it seems as though those uh, uh structures that are in place don't encourage individualization which makes they, me wonder why more artists and people in, in cultural fields um, don't consider collective organizing or working cooperatively or employing some of those other strategies that could alleviate some of that uh, burden, financial burden. I completely agree with you. Like, I mean, yeah, it's not set up for individualization. and It's not... Um, the, it's just... I feel like there's this... Uh, there's this corporate model where you have like a full-time employee and you and the 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 company pays like part of their FICA, the company pays like for their, you know, a percentage of their um, premium for healthcare and dental and vision and you know, even like get a 401k or a 403b and then, you know, it provides you with like sort of this like you know, integrated structural like savings and um, benefits package um, for retirement and for just like health um, that, yeah, is definitely not built into um, an individual's plan um, if they go out on their own. The corporations have kind of set this structure up for the insurance companies and for these like fiduciary companies. And so if an individual comes, like they're working with like the marketplace and like buying it on their own. And it's quite expensive because, you know, just as if you buy a single item versus like a bulk you can kind of get wholesale um and now there's a lot of like health averaging that companies are doing and there's also um like the health savings plan a lot of them are switching over Mm -hmm. to um and so it would be wonderful if like either it's a nonprofit or some sort of organization like would just manage health care and retirement plans for artists and you could buy into it and pay a premium, but it would really just depend on like how many people were actually interested in doing that and how consistent it would be sure. because it's like, you know, maybe you're doing freelance for like a year and you buy into it and then you end up getting a full-time job and your employer is going to give you health insurance. Um, you know, then you drop out of it. it. I think it would be, but I think it's definitely possible and it would be to advantage. So let's say an organization did decide to kind of take on that responsibility of uh, implementing some sort of healthcare policy that artists could buy into Mm -hmm. um, and that freelancers could buy into. What would that look like and how would it be different from, um, how would it 
sort of structurally be different from like the freelancers union, for example? I think that you might be able to be a little bit more competitive, possibly. Like, because you you might not, or I guess you could just write it yourself and maybe write it open enough. And so if it wasn't tied to a union and it wasn't unionized, it... Think you would have some flexibility um you would definitely want to have like a staff i think for hr stuff it's really important like and it's it, those contracts are not like always like the easiest things to read and get through mm-hmm. and like all the fine lines so you want someone that can like look through the details but you also want some checks and balances on that person um so i think we would have to have like some sort of like board maybe and like a small administrative staff um potentially um and then all the people buying in there's got to be some sort of like reconciliation um i think you'd also want a lot of transparency in terms of what the premiums people were paying for um because you know it's like a you know 65 year old with you know pre-existing conditions is going to be have a different premium than uh you know 60 or 18 year old that's like healthy you know healthy with no pre-existing conditions mm-hmm. so or like the cost of like having a family plan versus like individual so I think you would really want um to try to do health averaging with it um where it was like a similar rate where it got at the premiums got averaged and uh, everyone who was on an individual plan paid the individual cost and everyone on a family plan paid a family cost so that it wasn't you know it could kind of like balance things out and the idea is that over time, when you know that twenty-four-year-old becomes a sixty-five-year-old with pre-existing conditions, they aren't—they can still afford to have healthcare. Um, so, I think I don't know how different it would really be in my mind than what is already happening in an HR department at a corporation. But I think that it would be be great if like the government would pay for part of it or do something like that. But, you know, until then, you might be able to get some great um, patrons or philanthropists to kind of help get the movement started. We found, like, a gap in the ecosystem. Something's missing. Um, artists are not getting paid equitably. for They don't aren't provided benefits. It's not the same structure of security that other you see in other fields. And um, I think part of that is the sort of, like, history of art, if you look at it, like, you know, going pretty far back, like, it's it has definitely been, like, a space for, you know, those that are privileged enough to go study painting or, like, those, like, to work in, like, the royal court or, you know, to do this, to, to do the Sistine Chapel or, like, you know, these, like, kind of, like, larger projects that are funded through nobles, patrons, royalty, or, you know, religious institutions. And so there was just a long history of that. And it really isn't until, um, you know, relatively recent that, like, we do have, like, alternative sources for funding and large revenues. Um, Do you think that's the reason for which artistic and creative labor have been assigned a kind of different monetary value than other forms of labor? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge reason of it. And then I also, like, here, look at Hollywood. Look at the, the diff- like, the pay um, difference between, like, you know, a actor that makes it, you know, and it's paid, like, billion or worth, like, billions of dollars or something like that versus, like, the person who's, like, barely getting into Second City for a couple of years and making, like, 
45,000, you know, like, and that's probably a good situation or thought we're thinking of it as a good situation compared to like nothing at all or not getting paid, which like happened. I think like that wage report said there's like 48 or 57 percentage of like artists in 2010 reported they made no income off of like their work. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I don't know why in arts and entertainment, it seems to be this like feast or famine or just like such a huge um, uh, gap between like right. making it and not making it. Exactly. There's not a whole lot of middle ground for people to occupy. No. Yeah. Like, and it's like, I guess, you know, you can think about that in like other fields. It's like, well, yeah, if you go in to be into finance, like you can easily get like probably like starting out of school, like a $45,000 job a year or something like that. Maybe like first day at Wall Street or something or I'm doing trading. And then if you do really well, like if you have that one thing that works out well, like you could make like a couple million dollars in a day, you know, that set you up for the rest of your life. So, I mean, you think you do see another field that's just far more dramatic in the arts. And I think the problem that you see in the arts is there's no middle ground. Like there, you do have these like positions at nonprofits where you could work as a education coordinator, development manager, or like these different jobs. But like, I really don't, I see that like, yeah, you're working for a museum and an art institution, you're working in the arts, but like, you're also still kind of just doing an admin job. Like you could have those same positions in another company. And that's kind of an interesting dichotomy too, because I feel like the bulk of the work that the, the labor that um, people who have those positions produce, it doesn't, I mean, it looks similar, like you said, to the type of labor that people produce in a lot of other industries, but mm -hmm. it's compensated very differently. But I think it's interesting too, when we talk about the kind of wage disparity in cultural institutions, to acknowledge that those wage gaps really preclude a lot of people from taking jobs in the arts, specifically women and people of color and mm -hmm. um, those who have been uh, denied access historically. Definitely. Um, there are huge gaps. Uh, I, you know, you look at the spreadsheet that's been going around um, that is listed in the articles. Um, a coworker of mine actually showed it to me this summer, and then now I've been seeing it in the media. And you know, you look at what you know an executive director, director at a museum, like can easily make like six digits, where someone in the education department is making like barely four. Barely four. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's it's still it's like very close to a living wage if you consider that $15 an hour, but like I don't know how you live off $15 an hour in New York, like unless you don't sleep. I mean, you don't, you it, move. Yeah, totally. But uh yeah, I do another article that I read on the Alternate Currents blog, which I think is so wonderful. Um the blog and the articles that are posted on there was about just sort of transparency with salaries, uh, with posting um, the salary range and the positions um, that are available. And uh, they, I think that's great because if there's like a, you know, middle management or job in a institution that, you know, you're, you are, you know, trying to move up into and you're thinking like you're coming from like a position that's like 40,000 and you're thinking you'd only ask for like 50 or 55 for like that jump, but they're posting it at like 65. At least, you know, that 
you that's the range and like that's what they have a budget for i think like growing up as a woman born in the early 80s like i wasn't taught to ask for things like i wasn't taught to um you know it's like tread lightly don't make waves like be be lucky be happy if you got something always be nice always smile always be polite and it's like but then the day like that really doesn't get you anywhere like people, i haven't thought of that maybe that social conditioning makes it makes that prestige job mentality easier to swallow or internalize and oh yeah you know, definitely it seems like those two things kind of line up, I, up a bit. I feel like the um like with michael's studio my experience there i was manning you know at first it was just me doing the um fabrication and then get to a point where like we needed to produce a lot more work, so we'd hire other. I'd hire other assistants and kind of train them um, and get them going. But I did find like the males that were, you know, kind of just out of art school. Uh, they were more comfortable asking for money for more money than than I was or had been. Mm-hmm. So I bet we could dig up research that yeah. to that same like exact <laughs> yeah. phenomenon across a bunch of different yeah, fields, and definitely sectors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's another interesting thing is like you know you see this inequity within the arts um, specifically, but it, I mean I do think it is echoing a lot of other fields. Like I think it is more dramatic, and you see it a lot more severe. But like I was listening to NPR the other day, and they're talking about how like you know, larger corporations are trying to switch more into gig economy. Like they're trying to, you know, I don't, it wasn't like temporary workers. I forgot the term that they put on it, but it was basically like contingent workers, contingent workers. It it wasn't quite that, but it's, that's exactly what it is. It's like, they're able to hire someone, um, with no, and not treat them as an employee. So they don't have to pay benefits. They don't have to pay FICA. They don't have to pay taxes. And then, um, you know, there's no repercussion if they fire them. They don't have to have a reason to fire them, and then they don't have to play unemployment. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's just that doesn't seem like it's going to, you know, be better for the country as a whole or for the world as a whole. Like, these corporations are just, like, making more money, and then workers are not having their basic needs taken care of or they're constantly, like, struggling to find more work or don't have that security. It could be laid off at any moment. Um it doesn't it doesn't help them you know be more active in economically it doesn't help them be more active um you know kind of as a society <laughs> like you know be able to give right. back and contribute yeah. to it mm-hmm. if you don't know when your next paycheck is maybe maybe you made like had a gig and made like fifty thousand dollars you know but you don't know what's going to happen in the next three years so it's like you can't go out and like buy a new car or like I don't know though, Peter. What <laughs> if you could choose an economic structure uh, for the future? Would you choose socialism? I. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't know either. I, I don't think... know if there's any good answer because the thing is that all of these uh, uh, alternatives are prefigured in politics, and the way in which we're viewing them is constrained by our current framework, right? So, like, we're seeing all of these potential alternatives work in response to late capitalism no definitely um i don't know much about um i don't have a lot of experience with the co-op structure but i think one of in terms of like the i think one of your questions was the benefit for collective organizing organizing for arts and culture um and more like structural support like 
I just think of like why it isn't happening more in like a microcosm like why aren't more artists getting together and like buying buildings together collectively or um at least to get some sort of uh you know like build some equity um Mm -hmm. or you know to have like affordable living and workspace um that's like it rent is just such a huge um kind of like life operational expense that you have um if there's a way and I think it is hard to you know just be like I want to you know do it but if you if people did it together it would be you know, just kind of like lessen the burden, um, and everyone can gain the be- some benefits from it. Um, I also had researched um, the CDFIs, the Community Developed Federal or Financial Institutions, um, where they are institutions, financial institutions that are set up to try to help um, people. Um, making a lower income um, and help them, you know, kind of get set up to buy a home or like do different things. And we have eight in Nebraska and I just learned about a housing one here in Omaha. That's the only one in Omaha. Um, So I think that maybe two, one thing I would say is like, there probably are some resources out there that people aren't utilizing or don't know Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a collective, like if we could just get better about like researching them and learning about them and then sharing the information Um, or like, you know, there could also just be some different standards and some different rules set on, um, you know, salaries um, within some of the museums where, uh, I remember like being a young marketing student in high school and reading about Ben and Jerry's and they have a rule where like the highest paid employee isn't paid more than 5% than the lowest paid employee. Um, I don't know if that goes for like their board or other things, but um, there is a way that, you know, you can set standards and write, um, you know, write codes that address that. and To make and co- the distribution of wealth more equitable. Definitely. Yeah. So maybe we'll wrap up okay. with one last question. Um, um, when you think about your work in cultural fields and your um, history, all the jobs you've worked leading up to this point in your life, um, what does job security look like for you now as opposed to when you were 25 years old working for uh, another artist? Um... Job security now for me means uh, so much different than when I was 25, and a lot of it is because I have an accounting degree. I have a business degree, and so it is a very um, flexible and marketable degree, and combining it with my background in the arts, like, it can kind of, like, actually have, like, a real niche in a way. Um, Part of the reason why I did it is because... They always need accountants. You can always get a job. And so, yeah, I feel actually like, I mean, you know, I'm not set up if I lost my job tomorrow. And I, you know, I definitely need a lot more experience. Um, And I really like where, you know, the situation I'm in now. But um, I do feel like uh, I am far more aware of planning for it and a lot better disciplined about, like, putting monthly savings away and like attacking debt and doing that stuff and setting up, you know, retirement. Um, that I think a lot of it has to do with just like, you know, learning, you know, the learning stuff for the past like 10 or 12 years, um, 
making mistakes and learning from them. And then also, you know, having some better examples and some better um, role models, um, not just from the art world, but like maybe from the business world. <laughs> so that's, uh, that, that is that's important. Nice. Those yeah. Kind of, yeah. Cross sector um, learning. Yeah. But um, definitely feel more job security. But who knows if I, yeah, who knows? I think that some people, um, everyone has a different uh, relationship with art and a different, um, you know, level of concern about, like, finances. And so, you know, for some people, it's, it, they wouldn't, money isn't going to stop them from continuing to be involved in arts. It's just, I do think it's good that we're addressing it because it is a problem for a lot of people. I agree, yeah. Thank you for spending your time with us today. Thank you, Peter.